0: Hi, this is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. So listen, the research is pretty clear that to become better at something, you need feedback on your performance. So why does it seem like providing feedback is so tricky? I mean, Let's take the old compliment sandwich. You know, you say a positive comment, then some critical feedback, then a positive comment. I mean, sometimes people respond really well to that, and other times I can see them cringing after the first compliment. Likewise, sometimes people respond positively to really critical feedback, and other times it's clear that they didn't want me to be, well, quite so critical. So clearly, whether our feedback is effective is not just dependent upon how we give feedback or the content of that feedback, but also on a bunch of other factors, including ones related to motivation and emotion. But the roles of motivation and emotion in feedback giving and receiving haven't been thoroughly explored and investigated until now. Drs. Carlton Fong and Diane Shallert have written an excellent article on motivations, emotions, and feedback, and I'm thrilled to talk to them about it today. And I don't think I'll need to use the old compliment sandwich today. It's all positive feedback from me. Carlton Fong is an associate professor in the College of Education at Texas State University. He studies psychosocial cultural factors and contexts related to students' learning and motivation, including the role of instructional feedback. He was recently awarded the 2023 American Psychological Association Division 15 Richard E. Snow Award for Early Contributions and an Association for Psychological Science Rising Star Award in 2021. He is currently co-chair of Division 15's webinar committee and was the former chair of the American Educational Research Association's Motivation and Education Special Interest Group. His work has been funded by the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. Diane Schaller is a Professor Emerita of Educational Psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She has been in the field for nearly 50 years, serving in leadership capacities for the American Educational Research Association and the Literacy Research Association. Her work is centered on how people learn, on how language, motivation, and emotional processes support and interfere with learning processes, and on how such psychological processes are necessarily embedded in and influenced by sociocultural contexts. Today we're talking about Carlton Diane's 2023 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Feedback to the Future, Advancing Motivational and Emotional Perspectives in Feedback Research, which is part of a special issue on Psychological Perspectives on the Effects and Effectiveness of Assessment Feedback. Carlton, Diane, kudos on the great article, and thanks for talking to me about it today.
1: Thank you for inviting us. We're happy to be here.
2: Absolutely.
0: So let's start here. I I love the Back to the Future reference in
1: your article title. So (laughs) how did that title and the entire article come about? That's a good question. I think it came from a symposium that we organized for AERA a couple years ago, and I think that title kind of stuck with us. We definitely enjoy the pun and the pop culture reference, but we also think it's an appropriate title as future oriented motivation is such an important facet to (laughs) how feedback is deemed effective or not. And we also thought it was kind of neat to give some feedback to maybe what future directions will also look like in this area. And so. It's a pun, it's a cultural reference, and it can be interpreted kind of in multiple ways. Mm
2: -hmm. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that is so wonderful about researching motivation is that motivation is, in a sense, always forward-looking. It's motivation Mm -hmm. to do something in the future, and uh, feedback sounds as if it's always in retrospect, or it's it's something that is a reference to the past or to past performance. So putting the two together is the perfect segue into feedback to the future, because it connects a past-focused reference to a forward-looking process. And so that was one of the reasons why that title seems so apt for us.
1: Yeah. And the project came about, I mean, this paper, there's kind of a funny story behind it, actually, because it turns out that we have been planning for a piece similar to this as far back as September 2014. So we actually have proof of this. Uh, We actually have a Google Doc that's entitled Constructive Criticism Paper educational psychologists. And we started that <laughs> nearly 10 years ago. And so we had even planned the venue for a work like this. And Diane and I began working together since 2012. We had a mutual interest in language and motivation in the classroom. And because of this joint interest in um, linguistics and motivation, we thought feedback would be the perfect topic to study. It's such a rich, complex activity that's full of language and motivated Mm -hmm. processes embedded within it. And so we really began collaborations about 10 years ago, and we haven't looked back since. But that's why when invited to write this paper, I asked Diane, because we had been thinking a lot about feedback and thinking a lot about constructive criticism as a complex construct to understand. Well,
0: your paper does a great job of integrating these various literatures in motivation, emotion, and feedback to point to new directions. And so I really appreciate you doing that work and sometimes it does take you know kind of 10 years to get your head around it yeah (laughs) you you chose to focus on three motivation theories and one achievement emotion theory so can you tell us which ones you chose and then maybe just a little bit about why you chose them as your focus
1: yeah so we chose self-determination theory expectancy value theories Mm -hmm. achievement goal orientation theory and for that emotion theory control value theory And we thought these were theories that have been very prevalent in the field of educational psychology. Um, They've been featured in various APA handbook chapters on motivation, as well as special issues on motivation theory. They are uh, well-cited, well-used in many of the top journals in educational psychology. So we thought these were important guideposts to make sure that we featured in our discussion.
2: I think it, it, when I teach motivation in my learning theory class, I mentioned that there are four main theories of motivation in my view, and the only one that we didn't bring into our paper was interest theory, or mm-hmm. uh, how interest motivates the learner in a learning situation. Mm-hmm. So the the other three are. Well cited, uh, very useful in explaining how people approach learning or educative environments or contexts. So Mm -hmm. it seemed appropriate to bring in those three. Mm -hmm. Interest theory is more recently considered a full motivation theory, and I I think there might even be some debate about that still. Hmm. So that was why we started with those three. But it wasn't easy to find a direct alignment. So as you'll see in the paper, there's a bit of explanation and rationale given as to why we've grouped the theories the way we have uh, and why we consider them all important.
0: Yeah. I mean, and there's so many motivation theories you got to have to say, we're going to work with this and, and not that. And, you know, there's other papers to write where you can bring in interest theory and, and other things. Right. And just so our listeners kind of know where you're coming from, how were you thinking about feedback? Like what's your conceptualization or perspective on feedback as a phenomenon?
1: Yeah, that in itself, I think we had to wrestle with. So it was interesting. We were tasked with writing a conceptual review on motivation, which is extremely complex, and Mm -hmm. feedback, which is in itself extremely complex. And Mm -hmm. we kind of spend the first little bit of our article kind of defining and delimiting what we mean by both motivation and feedback. And so to answer your question about feedback, we had to kind of get ourselves and get our readers on the same page. And so I think one kind of helpful way to think about feedback is it can be categorized in many different ways. And there is a useful typology that we use by Panadero and Lipnovich, where Mm -hmm. they talked about four different feedback dimensions. So dimensions of content, function, presentation and source and so using these four dimensions uh, we were able to kind of pinpoint kind of exactly what we were thinking of and um, but broadly we were interested in um, instructional feedback or the feedback delivered by a feedback giver and an instructor of some sort to a learner mm-hmm. and we were kind of open in some of these other dimensions because we thought variations in those dimensions actually yielded kind of meaningful, insights about the motivational processes associated with them.
0: And it it seems like your perspective was also kind of situated and interactive. It sounds like you were really viewing it as a feedback process, not just, you know, a giver providing feedback to a receiver. Is that correct?
2: That's exactly right. It's definitely uh, not simply a statement or a mark on a paper, or that's not what feedback is only. It's embedded in a process that has intentions of the feedback giver represented Mm -hmm. and constraints that are working on how the feedback is going to be delivered, as well as then most importantly, how the recipient perceives all that. And in fact, if anything, the biggest delimitation that we state in our paper is that we're most interested in what's going on from the feedback recipient's perspective and not from the feedback giver's perspective. A whole other paper could be written about what motivates someone to give someone feedback and what happens when the feedback giver perceives that the feedback recipient ignores their feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so so many wonderful possibilities could be done from the feedback giver's perspective, but from the feedback recipient's perspective is what we're focusing on in this paper.
0: Yeah, and that's what a good idea for a paper. (laughs) Okay, that's the next one. So in this paper, you chose to focus both upon motivation and emotion. And I, I thought that was wise, but I'm interested in why you made that choice and what you thought it brought to your paper.
2: What was exciting about thinking about feedback and motivation at the same time is that motivation has been approached from Many different theoretical perspectives. And for the longest time, a researcher had to choose, is it going to be a self-determination study? Is it going to be an achievement goal orientation study or an expectancy value Theory study, and they had to stay in the lane and not cross over and try to combine these different theories. I even remember a reviewer saying in 2010 that they didn't like my manuscript because we had combined ideas from self-determination theory and achievement goal theory at the same time. Hmm. But since then, there's been this interest in it's a small line of work, but there is a growing interest in thinking of motivation theories in combinations with each other. And one of the things that we saw by thinking about feedback from a motivation perspective is that there is value in each theory for different reasons or for explaining different situations that where one theory has a gap or is silent about some issue, another theory might have something to say about how important valuing is or how important a person's goals or needs might be. So all of the theories together help flesh out the complex human experience of being a learner and receiving feedback about your learning as you're coming along. Mm-hmm. That I think is an important like meta motivation theory. You know, it's a, it's, do you benefit from thinking of a particular situation from all of these perspectives, not just one of them?
0: Mm-hmm. So you organize this paper around five questions that students ask themselves during the feedback process. And so let's let's take each in turn. And there's, you know, there's a ton of interesting, important ideas, research, evidence, et cetera, in each question. So, you know, we obviously won't be able to talk about it all. Our listeners should definitely check out your paper for a lot more insight. But let's hit some highlights. The first question that students ask themselves is, what does the feedback mean to me? And can you talk to us about how self-determination theory, and in particular its focus on psychological needs, helps us understand how learners make meaning of feedback?
2: I want to answer your question not by addressing exactly the second part of what you just asked, uh, but the first part, which is where did this question come from? Mm -hmm. And one of the things, as we mentioned in the paper, is that all five questions are the kinds of things that students expressed in all the different studies that we've done mm-hmm. in different ways, and most specifically in the focus group study that we did and reported on in 2018. And, you know, do I even know what the feedback means seems very important. Mm-hmm. And when we received those comments from our participants, I was reminded of a dissertation that I had guided in the 80s, possibly my first feedback study that I had ever done. And it was a a student who was interested in how students learning French interpreted what their teachers wrote in the comments of their compositions. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I remember so vividly is that many of the students couldn't understand their teacher's comments at all. Many of the instructors of these French classes were themselves native speakers of French, Mm. and orthography in different countries is so very different. And the American students that my student was interviewing just couldn't decipher what the comments were. Mm. So you can imagine that these teachers are spending hours correcting their students' compositions and giving feedback, but the feedback is totally going nowhere because the students can't understand at all what the, the feedback is. So on the one hand, what does the feedback mean to me? It could mean nothing if you can't even read the teacher's comment. Mm -hmm. I've kept that in mind myself when I give students feedback on their work to motivate me to write as clearly as I can when I'm making handwritten comments. Mm -hmm. Uh, But beyond simply figuring out what does the comment mean or what does the feedback mean, Has to do with is this comment or is this grade a very important grade? Does it mean that I'm going to fail the course? Mm -hmm. Does it, you know, what is the meaning of that particular experience? And the meaning that is ascribed to these feedback statements then has motivational consequences. So now back to the second part of your question, Jeff, Mm -hmm. uh, about how does self-determination theory come into play here? What is the meaning of the comment is it could mean something about your competence. How good are you? given that you've received, let's say, a page worth of red marks all over the page. Mm -hmm. And that could influence whether you think of yourself as able to learn in this situation or whether you're a good student or whether you're a good learner in this particular domain. Mm -hmm. So that's what self-determination's perspective would be on that. And so on for the different theories that we cover.
0: Yeah, that, that's really helpful. And goodness knows when I provide feedback, my handwriting is often a barrier to people making <laughs> meaning of anything. And that, you know, that idea about competence in self-determination theory makes a lot of sense to me. You made a really interesting point about the other psychological needs in self-determination theory and how we might need more research there. Can you talk to our listeners a bit about kind of what opportunities might exist?
1: Yeah, I think the other needs of autonomy and relatedness may not be as perhaps apparent when thinking about feedback and what it may mean. Um, But we do think there are some interesting connections to be made, whether feedback is seen as something that's controlling of your Mm -hmm. behavior, whether we see it as something that's enhancing of a learner's autonomy. Mm -hmm. I think there's some really great opportunity to actually think about the most kind of motivationally supportive ways of giving feedback so it enhances and satisfies this Mm -hmm. need. Mm -hmm. Um, And then same with relatedness. How can feedback actually forge connections between the feedback giver and the feedback receiver? Or even among various feedback receivers, we think there are some really interesting future directions that can expand on self-determination's reach on exploring what feedback really means. Mm
2: -hmm. For example, does the feedback show that the feedback giver cares about me, Mm -hmm. actually cares about me doing well, and that's why this feedback is being given. When a feedback statement doesn't imply that kind of caring to the feedback recipient, then it may be more deflating and reduce their motivation to want to invest in the task.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It reminds me of the old cliché, That I think is true, even if it's a cliche, which is, you know, nobody cares how much, you know, until they know how much you care. And this section of your article has a lot of really helpful directions for future research. Then you, you transition into a second question, which is how do I feel about feedback? And, And you wrote that control value theory was really relevant here. So can you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: I will say, how do I feel about the feedback? I think that there is such a much more complicated response to that question than one might expect. The usual expectation would be that praise would lead to positive feelings or pleasant feelings, and criticism would lead to negative feelings or Mm -hmm. bad feelings. And from our own research and from looking through the, the literature as we answered this question, what we saw is that it's a much more complicated response that people have in terms of their emotions upon receiving feedback. In fact, it, you know, the response to receiving any kind of criticism runs the gamut from shock to mm-hmm. to anger to disappointment to then appreciation that the person spent time reading your work or watching your performance and is now giving you feedback, to appreciation, to, you know, even joy at receiving and being respected for what you've produced. So the gamut of feelings in response to any kind of feedback is so interesting. It's so complicated. And that's what we were trying to show there. And the connection between emotions and motivation is one that the control value theory, Peckren's control value theory of emotions is so good at interweaving together, because in fact, his theory is is a motivation slash emotion theory, as Mm -hmm. it puts emotions in the middle of a motivation process in terms of its appraisals and what moves you to actually do something. Mm -hmm. So we found that a very fruitful or easy question to answer.
0: And I really like how you've identified the complexity there. And it sounds like there's a lot more research to be done and to better understand the myriad of emotional responses that people can have and why. And then you talked about even taking a circumplex approach to emotion. So what is that and how would that perhaps advance our understanding of the role of emotions and how students feel about feedback?
2: Right. The idea behind a circumplex approach is instead of simply looking at valence of any situation, valence being whether it's a positive or a negative experience. Instead, you look at it as being represented on a, basically it's a three-dimensional model of like, when is the event occurring? So is it a retrospective upon looking back that you experience this, or is it during the moment, or is it a future prospective kind of look? Or is it on the pleasant side or uh, on the unpleasant side? That's the valence dimension. And then the activation dimension is whether the experience generates activity, generates energy, or whether it deflates or Mm -hmm. calms you down. Mm -hmm. That's a deactivating kind of experience. Mm -hmm. So those three dimensions of time, valence, and activation can then be used instead of talking about a particular emotion, you can talk about the dimensions Mm -hmm. being influenced by a particular situation. So if the feedback is effective, then it's going to activate you to engage in some kind of action, even if during that activation or what's activating you is an unpleasant emotional experience that you're having so it could be activating you to solve the problem or to improve the work in some way
0: yeah i like those groupings because there are so many emotions and there's so many different ways in which they can be experienced that it makes sense to me that we need to group them
2: Right. What, what's interesting is that even though we say that in the paper and I believe it mm-hmm. to be true, mm-hmm. at the same time I've always loved studies that looked at just one emotion and kind of mm. try to understand you know when a person experiences X relief, boredom, mm-hmm. whatever I find it interesting to think of the the sort of the realia or the particular, experience that is meant by that particular emotion i i did some studies on shame at one point with janine mm-hmm. turner and that whole idea of shame as opposed to guilt as mm-hmm. opposed to sadness as opposed to embarrassment i mean we sh- she and i spent hours and hours talking about like what in particular does it feel like to be ashamed of something, you know, like, what is that experience like? So on the one hand, we recommend in our paper that possibly an avenue to pursue is to look at these circumplex kind of dimensions Mm -hmm. when talking about how emotions relate to feedback. On the other hand, I Mm -hmm. still value studies that have looked at particular emotions associated with feedback.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and I could see how there may be certain emotions that are particularly powerful in a feedback yeah. environment, yeah. like shame or...
2: Um, yeah. And w- one of the interesting thing that Janine and I had found is that occasionally, excitement can actually interfere with the learning process. Mm. Like people reported being excited and therefore distracted oh, right. by mm-hmm. what the instructor was saying, you know, they just yeah. couldn't calm down enough mm-hmm. to actually listen to what was taking place in the lecture that they were attending. And that that was also interesting. So yes, the negative ones are important, probably more important because they can stop you from learning. But we also had this little datum that showed us that occasionally excitement can get in the way.
0: Too much of a good thing, maybe. Yeah, too much of a good
2: thing. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So your third question was, can I improve from the feedback? And for this one, you mentioned that expectancy value theory was particularly useful. So how does that theory help us understand learners' perceptions of whether they can improve their performance?
1: Yeah, this question we thought was particularly salient given the focus on what makes feedback effective. And I think that was something we were also grappling with as well. Like, what does it mean for feedback to be effective? And, you know, we eventually conceptualized that to be feedback that motivates you to take some sort of action, whether it's to improve upon your work or maybe something even metacognitive and actually maybe shaping mm-hmm. or uh, reshaping your thinking about a particular topic. And so, mm-hmm. so in order to have feedback to reach that point of effectiveness, I think this question is very salient. Can I improve from the feedback? And And we thought there were kind of two ways to think about this question. The first way is, what are the Characteristics of the learner that might help answer this question. And one kind of salient characteristic is how self efficacious a learner Mm -hmm. may be. And so Mm -hmm. we reviewed studies that showed that a student who has high self efficacy, you know, when they receive feedback, they tend to reflect about the feedback, they tend to consider the feedback and how it might be useful for improving their task or improving their learning. And so we thought that was an important facet to highlight and not just their feelings of self efficacy but also whether they thought they could learn and thought they could improve so Mm -hmm. something like a mastery goal or like implicit theory of intelligence where Mm -hmm. hey actually this feedback is useful and i can actually learn from this feedback and so we thought those were Really important characteristics to keep in mind. And then a second way to think about this question, can I improve from the feedback? is to look at the features of the feedback itself. And so a lot of work has been done and both in research as well in just kind of lay understanding of this idea of constructive feedback, right? Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. we can't emphasize enough its importance because constructive feedback or what the literature may call effectance relevant feedback is mm-hmm. direction that's gonna help them improve their target activity to help them feel more competent about how to respond to, to the feedback. This type of feedback is really an important feature that can't be overlooked. Mm-hmm. And then we also delve into some of the issues around praise and you talked about the compliment sandwich and <laughs> and how that can be you know kind of maybe not the greatest wisdom when it comes to giving feedback We know that praise is just really complicated. You know, praise can make you feel good about yourself, but it can also be maybe even misleading. It can be confusing even, like, is my Mm -hmm. task done? Have I done good enough? And so there's some complexity there when thinking about feedback features and in particular how praise kind of fits into that dynamic.
0: Yeah, and such a rich area, right? This question kind of outlines this problem space where motivation and emotion play such a large role. And what you were just talking about, Carlton, reminds me of kind of feedback literacy, right? Like how well do people know how to understand and internalize the feedback that they're getting? So are there connections between this question of how can I improve feedback and feedback literacy?
1: For sure. And that was one of the motivating factors for this review as well. Um, there's a lot of rich motivation theory in educational psychology, but there's also a really interesting complex literature around assessment and evaluation that hasn't always talked to the work done by educational psychologists. And so we -hmm. also saw this paper as an opportunity to make a couple of those bridges. And so feedback literacy is referring to the understanding and capacity to make sense of feedback and use it to enhance learning. And so we definitely see connections between this construct of feedback literacy and what we were kind of talking about in our paper, kind of like a feedback specific self-efficacy, right? Mm Because self-efficacy should be domain specific. So can we think about some of the principles and some of the tenets of self-efficacy in relation to feedback situations in particular? And so we saw that as a important um, domain specificity to keep in mind, as well Mm -hmm. as the the various connections with other constructs out there like feedback literacy.
0: Makes total sense. Moving to your fourth question, which I I really like this one. Do I want to improve from the feedback? So that question dealt not just with efficacy, but also the motivational qualities of the situation. So how can achievement goal theory guide the way we provide feedback that helps learners actually want to improve?
1: This is a really good question. I, I think we all can relate to the question of wanting to improve. So in addition to whether you believe you can improve, I think it's important to actually look at this dimension as well. And, and goal orientation, we thought, really fit nicely with this question. And as we think about the various goal orientations that have been proposed, we can think about a mastery goal orientation where learners you know see the benefit of exerting effort, of implementing various strategies to kind of maximize their learning. For these types of learners who are more mastery-oriented, these are the people that are going to be seeking out feedback. They welcome feedback. And what we found in our research that they actually kind of see more constructiveness. They kind of see more constructive aspects to feedback compared to those that are maybe less Mm mastery-oriented. But on the other hand, we see performance-oriented students, they might have different responses to feedback that could help them improve. They may be more maybe consumed with ego-focused needs, and they might think, oh my gosh, you know, this feedback that's Designed to help me actually might be a sign of failure, a sign that I didn't do as well as I wanted to do, didn't seem as impressive as I could have been, and they may quit altogether. And so Mm -hmm. there is this important connection between goal orientations and the desire to actually want to learn and use the feedback. Mm
2: -hmm. And also, one of the things about that question, every time I see the question, I always think of that complex juggling act that we all do in trying to decide what of all the important tasks we have to do is the next best thing to do. Mm -hmm. And when you've finished a task and you've turned it in, uh, you think, okay, I can cross that off my list. But if I receive a long list of suggestions for improving the work, now it's back on the list Right. And now I have to rejuggle it with all the other assignments and tasks that I think are important. Mm-hmm. And at that point, do I want to improve? Am I okay with the work as is? I, you know, having advised hundreds of students, literally, through their dissertation process, uh, I know that occasionally I'll have a student who is too tired to improve <laughs> the section that I've just edited and given them comments on because it's too much in all of the tasks that they've already accomplished. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of a cost evaluation. In expectancy value theory, this would be the cost of what's being asked of the student with the feedback. And mm-hmm. that just may be too much from the student's perspective at that moment. It's just too much. I don't right. want to do that. I don't want to improve mm-hmm. because it's just asking too much of me.
0: Sure. It sounds like there's probably some emotions happening in that moment yeah. that would be relevant. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, your last question was, am I supported by others or by the context in dealing with feedback? And for this one, you made a lot of great points about sociocultural context. But you also talked about classroom goal structures. So can you say a little bit about how classroom goal structures affect learners' motivation and emotions about feedback?
1: Yes. Classroom goal structures, kind of flowing from goal orientation theory, these are structures that embody messages to students about the goals that are relevant to their instructional context. And they're going to shape how feedback is perceived and how it's going to be delivered in the classroom. And so if we look at AIMS, you know, AIMS and Archer came up with this neat target acronym, the E stands for the evaluation dimension. And, And so we saw some really clear connections there between the goal structures that instructors can foster within their environments, as well as the types of assessments, the types of ways in which feedback is going to be delivered and perceived. And so one kind of common way to think about classroom goal structure, obviously it's much more complex, but one could think of maybe a very competitive or very maybe performance oriented environment versus more of a growth-focused environment where learning and and mastery Mm -hmm. are emphasized there. And we could see how feedback can be perceived quite differently depending on those two contexts. Mm -hmm. In a mastery goal structure, well, feedback is going to be seen as, okay, Like I'm not going to be compared to my peers. I'm not going to have these normative standards about, you know, put a starboard on the classroom about how well students are doing. But it's going to be more focused on You know, how were you doing from before, right? Doing Mm -hmm. these growth assessments rather than these normative comparisons that we see in a lot of classrooms, particularly uh, for younger students.
0: Yeah, that gets to, again, this dynamic interaction between the feedback giver or provider, the recipient, the context, the sociocultural context. And I'm assuming that there's a lot more work to be done to really understand, as you wrote in the paper what happens when students are in racialized, culturalized, or gendered contexts? right?
2: Right. It influences the interpretation. What does the feedback mean? You know, how do I feel about it? I mean, it it influences all of the other earlier questions that we were addressing Mm -hmm. in terms of the particular context in which the feedback recipient finds himself or herself.
0: Yeah, that that seems like a really important direction for future research among the many that you talked about in your paper. And again, we don't have time to go through all of the directions for future research and the educational applications of your five-question framework, of which I think there are many. But are there one or two that particularly excite you?
1: I think one that relates to this last question that we just described, the importance of the social context. And I think it's quite relevant. I think every day I see it on my newsfeed and it's this idea of generative AI and, Mm -hmm. you know, automated feedback. We want to maybe congratulate ourselves on thinking about some of these issues in our paper when before chat GPT really took off. So, Mm -hmm. but we interrogated that notion as we definitely saw this as a growing trend, this computerized automated feedback. And while we see, some benefit to the efficiency, the benefit to giving real-time, immediate feedback to learners, and we see that as really valuable. We also are a little concerned about some of these social concerns about Mm -hmm. the situatedness of the relationship between the feedback giver and the feedback receiver, Our work has pointed to kind of how sensitive the learner's perception of the situation and of the relationship to be. And so we were interested in how maybe a growing trend into this automated feedback area would interfere with some of those delicately Mm -hmm. kind of calibrated uh, perceptions Mm -hmm. of the situation. Things about care, things about trust. I don't know how those things are going to look when feedback moves towards the direction of being automated. And so I'm Mm -hmm. really curious about some of the things that we've discussed kind of taking a different shape in kind of this new era that we're in. Mm -hmm.
2: And, And related to that, one of the things we recommend in our paper is that there is a need in both motivation research and in feedback research for Real classroom, deep observations, close observation of learners and teachers working together and in real time and looking at what is the role of feedback and how does it affect the learner in those situations in terms of what are the consequences emotionally and motivationally for the learners. So sort of countering the idea that feedback can be automated is the fact that in real time, learners come to a certain situations with such a complex set of expectations and past histories, And it sets them up to interpret even the look from a teacher that could possibly not be intended to give any kind of feedback. But it sets them up to interpret all sorts of signs from their environment as information about how well they're doing and about what they should do next. And we think, or we propose in the paper that that would be a really fruitful avenue for research, for educational researchers.
0: So thanks so much for talking to me about your article. There's a a ton of good information in there and I really hope our listeners download it digest it, think carefully about it, because there's a, a number of directions for future research that I think are really promising. Speaking of our listeners, I know, you know, many of them are interested in writing a manuscript for educational psychologist, And, you know, sometimes that can feel a little bit daunting. So do you have any advice or tips to share with them?
2: One of the things that we kept thinking about the whole time we were writing this paper is that the process we're going through is the process we're writing about. And in fact, in some future project that Carlton and I are going to become famous for, it'll be a study of writers and reviewers in a feedback process Mm -hmm. as they first Mm -hmm. open the email that says unfortunately, we're not going to accept your paper, but we invite you to revise it in the following Mm -hmm. ways. And then Mm -hmm. they give you 60 different comments to guide your revision. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't help but feel very self-reflexive as we were going through the process. But really, writing for the educational psychologist venue, one reason it was part of the title of this old Google Doc that we had from 2014 is because the journal is the epitome of an outlet that allows you to talk about research from a more open perspective than is typically possible when you're reporting on uh, primary research or when you're doing a systematic review of literature. Mm -hmm. What I've appreciated over the years is that the educational psychologist is a place where you get people's ideas and not just dry reports of ideas or of -hmm. of data or of findings that you want to share with the academic community. And so I want to say that Carlton and I thoroughly enjoyed, were challenged and appreciated the care that we felt from the reviewers and the editors throughout the process
1: oh good yeah for me really quickly i was just thinking about the need to be generative in the ideas and the directions we were proposing and the connections and insights we were trying to convey i think there were several rounds of revision and each time the feedback was like, could you be even more generative? And I remember <laughs> talking to Diane and I was like, all my ideas are sucked dry. <laughs> like <laughs> It was just like, there's nothing left to give, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, each time we, you know, we dug deeper, we read more widely. And I think through that really stretching the types of ways we conceptualize feedback and motivation together and so so yes it was challenging but it was definitely well worth it so.
0: good well it certainly came out in the page you know the paper makes a number of really generative points and I think is going to be a really fertile place for people to find new research ideas so thank you hopefully it wasn't too tough but I appreciate all your effort on it finally you know let's take a minute to talk about your current scholarship what are you working on that you're excited about
1: yeah, so we recently had um, a study accepted that explored the role of self-compassion and feedback. And mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. a paper under review that we presented at this past year's ARA that examined how individuals with different kinds of future time perspectives perceived the constructiveness of feedback. And so both these constructs, self-compassion and future time perspective, we've noticed that they haven't really been studied in the context of feedback. And they extend our educational psychologist paper, its foray into different psychological and motivational factors. And so We're excited to kind of keep our investigation of feedback going with different lenses, different theories to really enrich our understanding of this complex process. And I'm also starting a new project with some other colleagues looking at learners' agentic engagement or how Mm -hmm. learners can insert their own preferences or their own style into the flow of instruction. So I think this is Mm -hmm. the kind of classroom dynamic that we're excited about that we Envision will be particularly useful for understanding how feedback works from a learner's perspective.
0: Fascinating. That sounds great. You know, the idea of self-compassion, I think, is a really important next step. I know that I've had to often be compassionate with myself when I get feedback from journals. So yes. uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's fascinating. It gets back to this idea of this dynamic interaction between feedback providers and feedback recipients and, and agentic engagement in that sounds like a really productive way to continue focusing on that dynamic interaction. So I'm excited to see where that heads. Thank you. So that seems like a great place to wrap it up for today. I encourage our listeners to check out Diane and Carlton's article in Educational Psychologist entitled Feedback to the Future, Advancing Motivational and Emotional Perspectives in Feedback Research, which is part of a special issue on psychological perspectives on the effects and effectiveness of assessment feedback. Carlton, Diane, thanks again so much for your hard work on the article and for talking to me about it
2: today. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: And finally, to our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other episodes on your favorite podcast app, or you can also go to the APA Division 15 website where they have all of our podcasts linked in the publication section. And I encourage you to rate and review us. But again, as always, thank you for listening.